And now, from the dark corners of the internet, where the exploits run wild, packets get sniffed, and the beer flows steady, it's Paul.com Security Weekly. To our sponsors, Tenable Network Security, the developer of enterprise vulnerability compliance and log management software, but most notably, the creators of Nessus, the world's best vulnerability scanner. Tenable Security Center software extends the power of Nessus through reporting, remediation workflow, IDS event correlation, and much more. Core Security Technologies, helping you penetrate your network. Rock out with your sploit out. Listen to this podcast and qualify to receive a 10% discount on Core Impact, the world's best penetration testing tool. And Sensic, create a hailstorm for your web applications. Sign up for a free trial of the hailstorm software or scan remotely with their new online service. Sensic, keeping your web applications in check. Hello and welcome to Paul.com Security Weekly, episode 203. I am your host, Paul Asadorian, and I am joined by Mr. John Strand. Welcome, John. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and as I said in my Twitter post, I love this quote. We don't suffer from insanity. We're enjoying every minute of it. I thought that was very appropriate uh, for our show. This is kind of an unorthodox show. Uh, John and I will be the only regular Paul.com uh, hosts. We have a very special guest, which I'll interview uh, after a few short announcements. <laughs> So, of course, this Friday, actually, I leave for Las Vegas, uh, where I'll be teaching a two-day advanced vulnerability scanning techniques using Nessus class. Um, I'll be giving two iterations of that and then attending Black Hat for a day uh, before I probably fall over from exhaustion <laughs> and uh, probably will have had enough of Vegas by then as well. Absolutely. And I think we should let people know that uh, the attendees from Paul.com this year at DEF CON will be Larry and intern Darren. Unfortunately, Paul and myself will not be there. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Larry is putting together a contest for DEF CON. So you should hear more about that very soon. And intern Darren will have all of our t-shirts. So these include the regular Hack Naked t-shirts, the ladies t-shirts, the polo shirts, um, Everything like that, Darren will have that, and everything is on sale at DEF CON for $10. Now, so. did we ever get the Paul.com Jersey Shore tank tops, or are we still waiting on that? <laughs> no, we, he will actually have quite a few of the Jersey Shore Paul.com pink hack naked t-shirts. Awesome. I, I, I give them out as gifts every now and again, and um, it's mixed results. Some people really oh. love them. Some people are kind of look at them like, you want me to wear that? <laughs> well, my grandmother took a picture of her and hers, and yeah. I got to send it to you later. That'll be so, the album art. <laughs> that'll be the album art for next year. <laughs> so, John, you get a couple of classes, the Metasploit class and the network penetration testing. All the details can be found in the show notes. Yep. 
We've got the um, official Metasploit class is going to dry run in Boston, August 8th and 9th. And if you guys want 25% off, MET25 is the discount code that you should be using to get uh, get a good discount for that. We're trying to get some really good people from Paul.com land to come in and check out the new class. HD Moore's looked at it. Uh, Carlos had a lot of input to the class. So it's just been really, really great working with everybody. But we'd really like to get it out there, have people kick the tires, actually you know, see if it breaks in different places, and then try to fix it, but it should be a good time nonetheless. Also, we'll be teaching 560 network penetration testing in Virginia Beach, August 29th through September 3rd, and that'll be a really good time. Um, I always like going to Virginia Beach because it's a, it's a nice place to get uh, seafood. And, it, and it's kind of like a white trash sort of uh, theme park, and it's exactly the type of place that I like to go hang out. So I feel like you know, it's my kind of people. I'm joking. It's really actually no. It's kind of interesting. Um, but oh, down to Virginia Beach. God, I'm glad we can edit this show. All right, Paul. That's all I have to say there. Now, see, when you say stuff like that, I never edit it out. I know you never will edit that out. No. But it, but it's true. It's like my family. It's awesome going back to Virginia Beach. So. So uh, the Kansas City uh, InfraGuard program is having a hacking challenge. They're looking for red team. Information is in the show notes. So with that, we will take a short break and come back with our feature interview for the show. And we're back with Alex Landstein. um, Alex is the um, uh, product engineering, sales engineering, and security research. Um, He is the security research. Let him uncover a botnet with web malware sites associated with McColo Corporation. Uh, his key, uh, his work was key in taking McCullo off the internet. Uh, he currently, uh, Alex, I'm sorry, what is your current title over there at FireEye? That's a good question. Uh, yeah. I do anything from a little bit of a little bit of research, a little bit of you know straight up product engineering, product evangelism, uh, basically anything customer facing where the customer is, uh, is is more on the advanced side of of malware and reverse engineering. I, I deal with them. Mm-hmm. It seems like always a frightening place because the Bobs come in and will be happy to ask you what exactly is it that you do here, and it might be a tough, tough thing to answer. Oh yeah, <laughs> well, everyone always asks me what my title is. Like title, I don't know. We're a startup, you know. We've got you know fifty, sixty employees, so everyone kind of wears a lot of hats. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes. So now, uh, John, do you want to tell the story of how we first met Alex? Because I, I think it's a good story, and it kind of speaks to uh, why we wanted Alex to come on the show. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, we talked about it last week, but I really want to hit it again. Um, we were at uh, what was it, Louisville, Kentucky ISSA, which is an absolutely yes. wonderful. It's not a con, but there's still like 300 people that show up. It's out at Churchill Downs. It's phenomenal. Iron Geek That's was there. That's where um, a couple of Paul.com members drank a little too much bourbon the night. Yes, before. yes, and ate food that was way too expensive and not nearly as good as the cost uh, denoted. Yes, but the whiskey yes. and the bourbon went a long way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you can ever make it down there, you should. Iron Geek's there. You'll see uh, Relic floating around as well. It's just a really, really good place to go hang out. And I, I was kind of being a jerk that day. At least Paul kept on telling me I was being a jackass. And I was going from booth to booth to each of the vendors and asking them just some basic questions about their product. And a lot of the people could not answer the basic questions. Um, you go up to some booth babes and you know some of these guys would answer questions like, like oh, I don't know anything about, about our product. Uh, you're going to have to talk to our technical person. He's really smart. You'll like him. And it was really, really quite awful. After we went through, what was it, four or five vendors, Paul? I can't remember. At, at least it might have been more than that. 
and, and Paul was ready to give up. And I'm like, no, there's got to be somebody that actually understands their product and what they do. Well, and you we know, it, I, was, I was enjoying the, uh, the scenery of the booth babes as well. So I, I, that's why one of the reasons why I had you keep going, John. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's the icebreaker. So what can you tell me about depth exceptions? Um, I don't know. So, uh, and then we'd walk away. Um, but no, then we got to the FireEye booth and I started asking questions and – Oh my God, they could answer the questions, not only answer the questions, but they were coming up with some really innovative, neat approaches to dealing with malware in the enterprise. And I uh, asked, uh, Alex, I think you were one of the people in that booth that day, correct? I, I was, but we do have a great booth bit too. So <laughs> yeah, yeah notice how I didn't call you a booth bit because I'm sorry, you probably don't qualify. Uh, <laughs> but my grandmother might be, you know, looking for a job if you're interested. She's got this great, never mind. Um, so at any rate, um, asked a lot of questions. Alex was able to answer the questions extremely well. As I said, he came up with some innovative, innovative approaches to dealing with malware. And then we got up and did our presentations, and uh, I basically told everyone in the in the group that they needed to go talk to the FireEye people because they have something different. Um, one of the big problems in computer security is the traditional approaches are broken and they're stale and they have not worked. And FireEye seems to have some fairly in- innovative approaches to things. Um, so that was really really cool. As Paul and I were leaving. That day, going back to the uh, sea of bourbon that was the hotel, uh, we basically said we have to get somebody from FireEye on the show. We got yeah, because I was like, show. well, not only could they answer questions, I said, but they actually presented some unique and interesting and new ways to solve problems. Um, yeah. which is like, I mean, usually don't even get someone that can answer technical questions, never mind someone that is presenting unique ideas. So, uh, yep. Alex, why don't you just tell us a little bit about um, the research and development that's happening at, at FireEye and, and what your product is doing? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't think it's it, it's any surprise to you guys or your, or your listeners that, you know, the kind of the classical model of someone scanning networks and breaking into networks using, you know, some sort of like Windows service vulnerability, like a SMB or RPC or whatever, um, you know, it's not really any surprise that, that the initial exploitation has kind of shifted away from that, and it's now targeting, you know, either a document reader like a PDF or a, you know, Office or, you know, the browser, Internet Explorer, Firefox, whatever, um, or, you know, one of the plugins sitting inside the browser, you know, Flash, RealPlayer, QuickTime, one of these things that's uh, got a pretty rich executable environment, but, um, you know, relatively poor security because it's, you know, kind of a new vector for, for attacks to come in. So, you know, that's that's just where the bad guys have shifted to. The drive-by downloads, the uh, malicious PDFs that come in via email attachments, whatever. Um, so, you know, we make we make a product that uh, that's, that's accurately able to detect that stuff and do it without signatures, you know, without any sort of knowledge of what a bad PDF looks like or what bad JavaScript looks like, you know, be able to accurately say, hey, this is malware, and then stop it from coming in. Um, mm-hmm. And it's actually a pretty, a pretty simple conceptually product, where we take what we see on the wire and detonate it inside virtual machines. And we've got basically sandbox instrumentation um, that's watching for file manipulations and it's watching for registry changes and we're watching the memory space of the different processes. And, you know, we're just watching everything from, from the kernel space to the user space to the network layer, whatever. And based on what changes that file or that object or that web flow is making, you know, you can, you can tell if it's malware or not. Because, you know, from being exposed to web traffic, you can kind of, you know, you can drop a pretty clean box of these things are legitimate, these things aren't possible. You know, so wait, is- so let me get this straight out. So you're taking uh, a packet capture, and that's probably one scenario, right? A packet capture, 
And sure, it could be a packet capture. It could be you know yeah. a span port. You can de- you can deploy gotcha. it inline, whatever. Yeah. Okay, so you're taking the malware or whatever the executable or whatever you're seeing come off the the wire, and you're mm-hmm. actually running that inside of some kind of virtual machine, and then detecting if it's actually infecting that machine with malware. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know, and, but not just detecting whether it's infecting it with malware, but really being able to accurately detect the exploit. Yeah. Um, so you know, so it's not know, like any it's not like antivirus software. You're not no, no. Inf- oh, yeah, infecting yeah, a system use, and then seeing you know detecting it in some way like that, right? Right. No, no. We don't use like pattern matching inside memory dumps mm-hmm. or you know trying to MB5 the executable or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. we're just watching. You know, we know what changes PDFs are allowed to make. You know, when you visit a web page, web pages mm-hmm. are allowed to create cookies, right? They're allowed mm-hmm. to add files into the cache, into the you know the temporary directories, whatever. It's impossible that when you look at a web page, a web page creates a Windows driver on the system, right? Mm-hmm. You can't mm-hmm. you can't go from A to C. You know, when you open a PDF, PDFs can't download and execute an EXE without asking you, right? Without user interaction. Mm-hmm. You know, it can't do a heap spray, it can't do an overflow, it can't it can't whatever. Mm-hmm. So if that happens, the only way it could have is by leveraging some sort of software vulnerability. So, uh, you know, we, so it's more like you're looking at the behavior of what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we're watching for things that are impossible. It's not like it's bad coding practice for JavaScript mm-hmm. to, you know, add a Windows service. It's that it's not possible. Mm-hmm. So if they could have, the only the only way they could have is by by doing an exploit. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the questions I asked you um, back in Louisville that I wanted to ask you now is how do you deal with virtual machine detection that a lot of malware has today? Sure. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, you know, it's a checkbox that you can, you know, when you're when you're using your malware kit or whatever, you know, check for a hypervisor, check for, you know, some folder name that's VMware or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, you could write a piece of malware that could easily detect FireEye. You could write a piece of malware that could detect, am I running inside a debugger? Am I running at the right organization? Am I right, running at, you know, the right user desktop, whatever. So that's why catching it in the exploitation phase is so important. So, you know, if you look at the whole life cycle, that piece of malware is going to get dropped by something, right? It's going to get dropped by a PDF, you know, shellcode inside a PDF. It's going to get dropped by JavaScript on a, on a browser. So what we do is pain analysis. So we're able to detect not just the initial buffer overflow, which is obviously way before the virtualization detection, but we're doing shellcode tracking too, and we're doing heap spray tracking, and we're doing all these things to actually watch the shellcode execute well before it does the, you know, either the virtual machine detection inside the shellcode or inside the malware. So, you know, even though you could easily write a piece of malware that could detect, I'm running in FireEye, I'm not going to do anything, just to get that to load, you have to have the exploit, you have to have the overflow happen. So what we would say is, well, we saw this overflow happen, we saw heap spray happen, we saw shellcode execute, and then it didn't do anything, which is kind of weird. But, you know, just the very fact that an overflow happened, you still know you got owned. We just can't do that, like, you know, second, third, fourth level analysis. So aside from, like, heap spray overflows, buffer overflows, the various JavaScript attacks, are you guys going through and also checking for other things, like adding users to the system, adding uh, scheduled tasks to the system, or possibly going through and adding different registry keys to the computer as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so our, our our analysis is you know comparable to something you'd see inside a sandbox, so like a you know a threat expert or a CW sandbox or a Norman or one of those, where we're tracking you know file creation, registry modifications, services, mutexes, network traffic, you know all the UAC stuff you mentioned, you know SSDT, 
you know, all, all the different, you know, kind of the, the table, the, the address table level things, you know, we're tracking process injection, we're tracking memory modification. So yeah, I mean, we see all that stuff. And then the other thing that we do is track, okay, the malware is inside the VM and then the VM is going to try to reach out to command and control and say, Hey, I'm here, I'm infected. And we've got that sandbox, obviously. So the VM is going to tell us, here's who the CNC is. So then that local appliance can turn around and watch for that traffic on your network. So that, you, you know, because as a network device, we know that the malware went by, you know, we know it got delivered to the user, but, you know, did their antivirus stop it or, you know, mm-hmm. maybe they just downloaded an EXE but didn't run it or, you know, whatever. But then if you see the callback come back out, you know, the malware infected our virtual machine, the VM tried to reach out to the command and control. And then you saw that end user also try to reach out to that same command and control. You know, you know that not only did the malware go by, but it obviously succeeded or else, you know, they wouldn't have phoned home like we did. So now, got to, you, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Alex, do you, now, are you actually running a copy of Windows? Yep. Yeah. So it's a full instantiation. It's not, we don't just okay. run like a browser sandbox. These are full licensed copies, you know, different versions of XP, different versions of seven, whatever, mm-hmm. um, running different patch levels, running different browsers with different, you know, PDF 789, Flash 8910, Office, you know, mm-hmm. 2003 or 7, 10, whatever. I uh, we kind of run like a matrix of, of whatever you see inside your environment. Right. Now, can the user select which, you know, copies of Windows you, they want to run, or is that something you're just automatically doing in the background? Um, so we fingerprint we fingerprint what the end user was. You know, we basically do POF um, mm-hmm. to figure mm-hmm. out what OS and patch level, and then we use the user agent to figure out what browser they are. Mm-hmm. So we, we model it as closely as we can uh, to the end user. Okay. Yep, yep. But, uh, but we also let the users add, like, if they have like a golden master image, you can just take that and load it into our box. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not quite as easy as one click, but it's doable. I gotcha. Um, so now, do you only do you support OS 10 or Linux in that scenario? Um, we do. I mean, we have. If you're familiar with QMU, um, yep. We don't we don't use like straight up QMU, but it's it's mm-hmm. certainly conceptually very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, we can emulate anything on top of x86. Mm-hmm. But uh, we haven't really found the market that people are willing to pay for that. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a technical limitation. I mean, you don't even find people buying antivirus for Macs. You know, right, right, right. Buying a, yeah. you know, so it's, you know $50,000. It's interesting that you it's interesting that you mentioned that you use QMU as a virtualization platform. Doesn't that help get around some of the actual virtual machine detection techniques that a lot of malware uses, like store interrupt descriptor table, store, lo- store local interrupt descriptor table, um, because yeah, it handles it differently? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly emulated at a, at a lower level. Hmm. Um, but, I mean, not that there aren't attacks on QMU, and not that you couldn't run an attack on FireEye specifically, but, you know, still, be, you... It, it ha- that malware has to get just to do those checks, just to execute. And, and even if you're doing it inside the shell code where you're checking for a register, just to do that, you have to have control, right? You have to have, yeah, you know, you know some sort of exploit has to take in place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very cool. So, um, what what kinds of uh, what's the most popular kind of malware that you're seeing now? I mean, you must have like research sites where you're you're testing your product, right? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, in our, our, so our, well, our box ahead. is actually phoned home to us too. You know, unless oh, you're okay. some sort of, you know, DOD or Intel organization, you pretty much phone home to us. Mm-hmm. So you're going to tell us everything you're seeing, and it's anonymized and all that. But mm-hmm. the reason for that is, you know, all the boxes are discovering command and control channels on the fly, mm-hmm. and then those all come up to us and then get pushed back down to the customers, so that you know you can detect the command and control just based on the beaconing. You know, so if someone gets infected at their house or at Starbucks. 
you know, they come back inside your enterprise, you can detect them just based on the phone home. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I mean, in terms of the biggest malware family, I mean, obviously Zeus is right up there. Mm. Uh, everywhere we go, we see Zeus. You know, Gozi is kind of taken off. Um, Roostock is huge. It's a huge spam bot. Grum is pretty big. Um, yeah, so I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of kind of generic malware families, you know, your, your top 10. Mm. And then there's stuff that's, that's custom written that we see all the time. Now, the custom-written stuff, are you seeing that targeting specific organizations? You don't have to name who it is, obviously. Sure. I mean, we, yeah, we used to see it targeting specific organizations, and now it's – I mean, criminals are finding it I – mean, they they can make so much money. I mean, they, like, the amount of money they can make is, like, is limited only by their imagination, basically. You know, you mm-hmm. can take any organization. You can take – I mean, if you look at the – yeah, I, I almost hate to talk about the Operation Aurora stuff just because it's such like a marketing term. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the companies that were targeted, I mean, you know, obviously Google, but, you know, Adobe came out and said they were hacked. Rackspace came out and said they were hacked. And then some of those chemical companies, some of those defense companies, mm-hmm. you know, other large Internet companies, it's like they really didn't have anything in common except that they were, they all have interesting intellectual property. Right, um, right. I mean, if you can break into, break into Dow Chemical, like think of think of what you can steal from there, mm-hmm. then you can replicate. It's 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 wild. So yeah, I mean you could break into almost any organization, and whether you're going to steal you know PII or you're going to mm-hmm. steal intellectual property, you're going to steal source code. Everyone's got got something that's you know the the Chinese are after. Mm. Interesting, John. Did you have uh, did you have any other specific questions for Alex? Yeah. Um, one of the things that I thought was really cool, and this is something that I, I like about a lot of companies, I, I wish more would do this, is aside from just having product white papers, you guys also have an entire um, sort of website about education of malware, uh, the modernmalwareexposed.org. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like a lot of what you guys learn, you're giving right back to the community. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, and we give, um, we basically give like intelligence feeds to kind of, you know, the trusted internet good guy partners um, that, you know, aren't going to monetize it, but can make good use of our data either for remediation or for helping law enforcement or whatever. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely open on the research side of things. You know, if we see an interesting PDF come across, we see an interesting, you know, executable or an O-Day or something like that. I mean, yeah, we've, we've got a great blog and we've got that, that Modern Malware Exposed site. Um, but it's really just if you're interested in malware forensics, if you're interested in the real nitty gritty of, you know, a heap spray implemented in action script or, you know, this, you know, some command and control, command and control that's using an interesting encryption technique for the outbound. I mean, it's all technical. There's no marketing. There's no PR style stuff on it. It's just it's really for the analysts to, you know, just let them know what we're seeing in, in ways that they can you know tackle different problems because really everyone it doesn't matter what what vector you're in you're what what vertical you're in rather i mean if you're in intel if you're in dod if you're in financials if you're in edus people really all see the same exploit vector you know you see email attachments and you see drive-by downloads i mean it's it's all just what they're targeting so everyone's got the same problems are you seeing uh, a larger percentage of malware use encrypted backdoor channels? Oh, yeah. I mean, almost 100% uses some sort of encryption. Mm. I mean, there's Gozi is like really the only kind of wide-scale, like widely distributed malware that doesn't use encryption, which is mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, so the only thing that, that's on the market right now to detect, you know, PII leaving networks is DLP, you know, the, mm-hmm. the data leakage prevention stuff. 
which mm-hmm. is looking for, you know, a pattern of a social security number or credit card number or something like that. Oh, and I've got a story about credit card numbers, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> you know, well, we like those stories. Please, please tell. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I almost don't want to slam them. You know what? This is, this is a pretty friendly podcast. So I get, you know, and this is fine. I, so I got my Amex card stolen a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I had the card for like, I don't know, a week or something before it got stolen. I'd used it only a handful of times. And like I had it, got, credit cards. it got physically stolen? No, no, no. So the, the number got charged oh, okay. gotcha. by like BBIT Internet Solutions in the Netherlands. So mm-hmm. Amex calls me and they say, you know, were you just in the Netherlands and made a purchase? I was like, well, what do you mean just? They're like, a minute and a half ago. Like, oh. <laughs> so like, okay, well, you're well, hold on. I was just stolen. stepping out of my time machine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're like, well, okay, well, your credit card number's been stolen. I was like, oh, that's a pretty good, you know, fraud system. You know, they hadn't called me with, with like fake fraud or bad, you know, their algorithm mm-hmm. worked, you know, unlike Chase, who seems yeah. to think that everything I do is fraud. Mm-hmm. So they call me and you know, they say, you know, your, your credit card's been stolen and we're going to issue you a new card. We're going to send it overnight. It's like, okay, that's great. So they send me a card number. And it's like 900 digits different. Like everything is is the same. My last card was like, you know, 4,152 or something. And it was incremented by like 900. I'm like, this is the worst credit card generation algorithm I've ever seen. They didn't change the CVV. (laughs) They didn't change anything. Like the expiration date. I was like, they're just going to steal it again. Like, Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not no surprise they stole in the first place if you have this kind of algorithm. So, but so bad guy, you've noticed bad guys doing that. Do they try and just increment the number? No, like sure. knowing that the algorithm kind of sucks. I, I don't want to say who it is, but one of the <laughs> one of the the vendors had a, a basically triple des key. You know, mm-hmm. so they had a key rotation thing for the credit card numbers, and the bad guys figured out what the key rotation was, and they were actually stealing the cards before right. they even got delivered. Like the, they hadn't even received the card yet, and the bad guys knew what the rotation was going to be, and they were right. already frauding it. It was incredible. We saw something like that similar a couple of years ago. It was at uh, um, RSA downtown San Francisco, and one of the malls down there. If you went down, and you purchased a gift card. You'd walk up, purchase a gift card, and they just reach into a box, pull – I think it was Visa card out, and then you could basically put money on that card and work at any of the stores. And it was a Visa card. All of the numbers were completely sequential uh, for, for, for every single one of those cards. You come up on the holidays, you can just basically uh, replicate those cards fairly easily. So, yeah, we see that quite a bit with really bad uh, credit card number generation algorithms. It's, it's, it's criminal. It should be criminal. you know. But anyway. So, no, I, I so did anything else happen with your card? Oh, not yet. It's going to get stolen oh. in two weeks, though, I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> you may just I, want I to call them and say. You may just want to call them and say, um, my credit card is going to be stolen. Can you just send me a new one now? <laughs> just like regenerate. Like I'm going to open a new account. But I mean, they got it in the first place. So, right, right. You know, I'm sure they had the the guy who had it right before me. You know, where whatever his number was. Well, you rip on you rip on Chase, but um, I I actually use them, and I do like the fact that they're extremely paranoid. They're like, you used your credit card today, and we put a full stop on your credit card. Is that okay? Um, that level of paranoia is is good, especially with as much as I travel. And we've actually came across a couple of situations where my credit card did get stolen and they managed to catch it within a purchase or two. So I was pretty impressed with that. Even though it is annoying, yeah. I like it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and you know, I, I didn't mean to rip on Chase. Chase is a great company. You know, they, I don't understand. Yeah, they're listening, yeah, man. They're listening and they're coming exactly. after <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you got to look at their motivation for doing it, right? I mean, they don't care about the consumer. They're responsible for the charges. So they're going to be, you know, 
So I don't know. Not like I think they're a great guy, but you know, if they were doing it for better guy reasons, I'd I'd better guy be okay with it a little more. You know, like unlike a bank. So if you're a consumer, they're responsible for your for fraud charges. But if you have a business account, they're not. So you know, you see these these businesses getting taken for 500k, 750k at a whack, and the banks are saying, "Oh, sorry, it was fraud, but you're responsible." So, you know, where's the paranoid algorithms there? But um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess my my biggest problem with the Chase algorithm is I I do the same pattern of strange charges like with the same vendors, and they flag it yeah. every single time. I'm just like, stop flagging this like i'm telling you they'll flag every time on porn sites it's just happens. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. <laughs> i mean granny's online they just they i don't know Must be <laughs> so um do you do you see the source of where the, a lot of the malware is coming from is it all over the charts is it mostly porn sites is it you know where, where does the stuff come from yeah i mean it definitely used to be kind of like the the dirty parts of the internet you know like you're saying mm-hmm. the porn sites the gambling sites but, uh, you know, it's just becoming monetarily worthwhile for the bad guys to buy ads. And what the, what, what's really cool, you know, I'm going to use Google as an example, not as me saying Google is mm-hmm. serving ads that are bad. Um, but if you, you know, if you sign up for Google ads, you can say, here are the keywords that I want. You know, when people search for these keywords, I want my ad to appear on those sites. Mm-hmm. So if you look at a site like Drudge, which was hosting, you know, malicious ads uh, a month or two ago, it would be really easy to go in your keyword account and say anything with Drudge Report or, you know, and then or punch in a bunch of keywords that are a news story or something. You can make your malicious ad show up on someone else's page. Mm-hmm. And we had a we had a story about that last week where a lot of the stuff is being done pretty much automated as these new like hot stories happen. Um, like whatever star of the week ends up in rehab, dead, or in a car wreck, they automatically oh, yeah. register yeah. those keywords so that it, they get – Well, they're, yeah, they're scraping the most search for terms off of Google. Yeah, the, the Zeitgeist or the Google Trends or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, if you yeah, just Google take Trends, that word yeah. for word and search for it, you know, the, like the first nine out of the ten hits are going to be malware. They're going to be fake antivirus or drive-bys or whatever. Yep. So, what are some of the other trends you're seeing with uh, with malware in general that are interesting? Um, you know, I mean, it really hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot. I mean, you look at Zeus. Zeus has been wildly successful in terms of, of being able to get around antivirus by using, you know, cryptors and binders and different packers. And, you know, once they get a foothold on the system, you know, whitelist themselves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, Zeus really hasn't changed their MO a whole lot in the past, I'll say, two years. You know, they've got, a, uh, they've got an RC4 key, so it's using fairly strong encryption. Um, and you know they've been they've been wildly successful. They've been able to, you know, you look at uh, the, the list of organizations that are getting owned. You know, every now and then, some startup company will put out a list of people. You know, name and shame, get the news in the press, but you know, name is in the press, but but whatever. But you know, the names are, you know, all the, all across the board. You know, there's there's nobody who's immune from the stuff. Or you know, whatever people are using is obviously not working. You know, you'd hope that companies like Google are doing best practices at every layer, you know, best network, def- you know, gateway antivirus, IPS, web filter, uh, you know, everything at the desktop layer, stripping user privileges, whatever. Um, I mean, I, I don't know about the network, obviously, but, you know, you, you think these companies are doing best practices and they're still getting owned and not just owned, but these guys are able to live there for months and exfiltrate data, you know, mm-hmm. without, without being detected. 
So now, with that note, people are doing is not working. No, no. Talking what? about you know best practices, one of the things that we've noticed over the past couple of years is that a lot of people that you would expect to do best practices still are not. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of companies are missing the fundamentals, the basics, and and, and it, it, from that perspective, it definitely doesn't seem like it's getting better at all. Now, do you see that same type of trend, or do you see a lot of companies that seem to be getting things correct, doing things right, still getting compromised at that level? I'm not talking about initial compromise of eight system, but I'm talking about months of access and hundreds, if not thousands of their computers getting compromised in the process. Um, yeah, I mean, so we go in and if people, there's a whole bunch of best practices you can do, but I mean, the biggest thing you can do is just strip user privileges. Like don't let people run as administrator. Don't let them run executables. Um, so if you're doing that, you know, we go in and we, I don't want to say we find very little malware, but it's certainly a dramatic decrease from anybody just who runs as a power user or administrator by default. Um, so that, that's the biggest thing that we see in terms of, you know, what makes the biggest difference. But yeah, I mean, people are, malware's hit the popular media, right? When you, when you read stories, cybersecurity is huge, right? That's, you know, one of the two big federal spends, cybersecurity and healthcare. Um, so it's hitting the popular presses and you get the CIOs and CISOs who maybe are, you know, I don't want to say legacy, but they've, you know, they've worked their way up the ranks and not quite as in touch. And, and people are finally realizing that, Hey, this is a huge problem. And, uh, and they're, they're, they're willing to put things behind it. Now, one of the interesting things about the, the Google story, which, you know, and I hate calling it the Google attacks. It's really not fair. Um, but you know, the, the vulnerability that hit them was an O-Day in IE6. What the hell is Google doing running IE6? Like, you know, run Chrome or run, you know, some better IE browser or something. But I don't know. I find that kind of Yeah, but there's there's still a lot of companies that have those legacy websites that when it was developed, the uh, the developer said, you know, they were going to check to make sure it was IE6 and that code stayed in it. And they still run IE6 because the website pops up and says, you should be running IE6. Oh, yeah. Java is the worst at that. You know, how many times do you go in and these Java applications are specifically written for an old JRE? But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, there's obviously a lot of reasons to run older versions of things. And, and I don't want to pick on them because everyone else got owned, too. But uh, Adobe getting owned was one of the scarier things. I mean, think of all the source code they have. It's a lot easier to find exploits if you can steal their source. But... Um, what was I going to say? So to circle back around to the user privilege thing, uh, are bad guys just not executing on privilege escalation attacks? Is that why uh, if you're running as an unprivileged user, it seems to be preventing some of the malware from infecting? Um, or it just prevents the human element, right? I mean, so software vulnerabilities are a big problem, but mm -hmm. humans downloading and running a postcard that came in via email, gotcha. I mean, that's, a big, that's a big problem too. I mean, right, we've got right, this right. super smart exploit detector that has all these nifty features. You can find zero days, no false positives, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But we've got just a plain Jane EXE extractor that if we see a clear text EXE go across the wire mm -hmm. and it adds a rootkit without asking the user or it, mm -hmm. you know, starts sending spam or something from our VMs. And those are, it's, yeah. it's unfortunately a very successful feature in the product. I really prefer it whenever my rootkits are installed and they ask me first. Exactly. Well, with the thinking that legitimate software is going to might make those type of changes, it might modify the startup or something. But there's going to be a EULA. There's going to be a, you know, would you would you really like to do this kind of thing? Or, you know, obviously malware doesn't want to give you an opt out screen. 
Yeah, actually, the, the, the fake AV, like EULA screens are really interesting. You know, whether you press yes or no, like the stuff's already installing in the background. The EULA's just, just keeping the there. user occupied for as long as yeah. that happens, right? Most people just yes right past the EULA. Right. Enter, enter, enter. Next, next, next. Right, right. And here's right. a picture of a dancing cat. So. <laughs> um, so, Alex, thank you very much. And now, is there anything you wanted to... Uh, to kind of plug for people to, to go check out any projects that you guys are working on? Or I noticed that there was a blog on the uh, Modern Malware Exposed uh, website. Yeah, so, I mean, we update that. It, so it's not run by the marketing team. It's run by the research people. And it's basically mm-hmm. whenever find, someone finds something interesting that they want to write about it, they, they write about it. So, mm-hmm. you know, updates might happen every day or, you know, every two weeks. But it's only mm-hmm. it's only going to be interesting. It's only going to be you know, fresh data. Uh, we are going to be out at, uh, out of black hat. We're some sort of silver sponsor, you know, some, mm-hmm. something we spent a lot of money for, I'm sure. But we've got a booth, <laughs> you know, stop by if you want to get a demo of the product or, or just chat about whatever. Okay. Sounds great. Well, we'll take a, uh, a short commercial break, Alex. Thank you very much for being on the show. And, hey, uh, we will segue into our first, our only technical segment for the show. So with that, we'll take a short break. And we're back. John Strand, you are on, my friend. Good Lord, it's been a long time since I've done a tech segment. What is it, like months? Or are we approaching a year now? No, it's months, I'm sure. It's been, it's been a long time. And All you're right. using a, a funny word called honeyport. Yeah, you know, I, I, I basically was is sitting Is that around. like a, an after-dinner wine that's very sweet? <laughs> that would be delightful that would be delightful <laughs> that it was in fact what it was now i'm just sitting here thinking as soon as you said that i'm like um ports yes uh, well maybe later that that actually goes good with the conversation about cigars too which we'll have to get into we'll have to get into later whenever we get to other stories for discussion and yes. hobbies <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Honeyports, uh, I was basically you know, talking about products aside from detecting malware. Um, lately, we've been running across a lot of products that – or a lot of organizations that have been running host-based intrusion prevention and network-based intrusion prevention. And they use automatic shunning. And it, it's really unfortunate because a couple of the products that we've seen over the past month or so, they're very susceptible to creating conditions where your network can DOS itself. So I send in a packet. Let's say we use something like HPing. I craft a packet and then I basically put in a payload that is a known attack signature and I send it into this network and it automatically blocks my IP address. Well, that seems weird and it's a really poor way of doing things and you can spoof people like Google, Microsoft and a whole bunch of other websites and effectively DOS their own network and that's that's really a sad state of affairs. So this is something I was thinking about the same time I was teaching in Denver. I had a student who came up to me and basically was talking about how he's, he's in the Air Force, he's going to school and he says we're getting ready to do a cyber exercise where we're going to go through and uh, we're going to have red team, blue team and I drew the shortest straw and I'm on the blue team. And that just sucks. And he was all despondent about it. And this is something I've ranted about over the past year or so, is that anytime you have these exercises, the red team gets core impact, they get metasploit, they get update nessus, they get everything that they can possibly dream of under the sun, and the blue team guys get a stick and a bent one at that to defend their networks. They're stuck with a bunch of Windows 2000, Server 2003, unpatched XP systems, no firewall and no antivirus. So what is a blue team person supposed to do in these situations other than just get pwned for the next five, six hours? 
So I wanted to come up with a way that we could do dynamic shunning. We could have automatic shunning of bad guy or possible bad guy attack traffic, but we needed to do it in a less stupid kind of fashion. In short, I just don't want somebody sending a packet into a system spoof from Google, Yahoo, or the score bot and have it completely shut that system down to that target IP address. So I started playing around with a bunch of ways, different ways to do this. I started with Linux, which we're going to talk about next week. And I had some great help from Paul, Larry, Mick, and uh, Byte to make things a little bit more streamlined. After I got that working, I decided to move over to Windows. So how can we do this with Windows, built-in command line utilities, maybe throwing Netcat into the mix to basically set up a honey port? So here's how it works. So if you take a look at the uh, at the wiki notes for this particular for this particular episode 203, you're going to see that I have what you can put into a bat file. Now it has a little bit of word wrapping, but it's all on one line. So we do echo off, of course, and I'll talk about why that's funny here in just a couple of seconds. And then we basically start a loop. It goes through and it identifies tokens. We're going to go through. We're going to run the netstat minus nao command, and we're going to find any of the lines that have three 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 listening. Now you could make that listen on any port that you wanted. You could make it port eight. You could make it port 8080. You could make it port 22. Just make sure it's not a port that's actually serving a business purpose. Then we do 4F tokens. We specify the delimiters. Now, on the delimiters, I had our good friend Mick Douglas help me out with that. Trying to specify multiple delimiters is fairly easy with Windows scripting. It gets a little bit more interesting whenever you try to use one of the default delimiters like tab or space in addition to another delimiter. So we finally got that sorted out. And then... Once we pull out that IP address, see, I just want the IP address. That's why I had to specify multiple delimiters. One, I need to specify the colon because, you know, the netstat command in Windows specifies as IP address colon port. So I just want to pull out just the IP address, not the IP address and the port in this example. So I can run the command, and then I run netsh advanced firewall. And if you remember my tech segment from a while ago, I don't have a lot of love for the Windows firewall, but you know what? It works well in a pinch, and it seems to work fairly well. Well in the situation. So do net do netsh advanced firewall firewall. We're going to add a rule. In this situation, I'm calling it whiskey tango foxtrot. You can call it anything that you want. Direction is in, and the remote IP address is going to be the IP address that is kicked out from our netstat command. Local port any, that means any port that that particular system is going to try to connect to, and the protocol is going to be TCP. We want to block it. So this what we do on the next line is we fire up a netcat listener. We do netcat minus capital L means we want it persistent. We want this to reiterate back again and again and again. So it's always waiting and it's always ready for someone to connect to it. Of course, you're going to need to have the specified port open. In this situation, it was 3333 through the firewall initially. So now as soon as somebody connects to that port, let's say that this was 8080 or uh, SSH port, an attacker, a pen tester, a red teamer would go through and scan the system and see a port of interest. Either they'd run an automated tool that would go through and then try to query what that service is, or they'd run something like netcat to connect to it. They'd run an nmap script against it. Um, pick your port, something that the attacker is going to trip on. But as soon as they touch that particular port, as soon as they touch that port, it's going to register their IP address and automatically block them. So I basically did some examples of how this works. So we set this up, and then I nmap from my Mac to the Windows computer system, and it says that port 3333 is open. So with the standard SIN scan, it's not going to trip that rule. The reason why it's not going to trip that rule is netcat is not going to run the execute unless it's a full connection. Then I do a netcat to that particular port, and 
it seems like nothing's happening at that particular port. Then I rerun my scan. As soon as I rerun my scan, that particular port is filtered along with all other ports on that system to the attacker's IP address. So now I've tripped on that port. I'm done. I cannot do anything hey, to that particular computer system. Go, Paul. Hey, John. Uh, I yeah. was just wondering if there's a way to create a whitelist. Um, a whitelist? Absolutely. IP Yep. Yeah. With Windows, and and this is going to be more specific whenever we talk IP uh, IP tables, you can create a whitelist. And I think where you're coming from is you do not want this to happen with your regularly scheduled scans and uh, and any pen legitimate. Because <laughs> yeah. obviously, Absolutely. if your your legitimate vulnerability scanner uh, hits this trap, it's going to cause problems. Absolutely, it's going to cause problems, and you can create those rules to allow that traffic in. Um, so without question, you can, and that, and that's really really smart. And this yeah. Is kind so of all you all you do is pre-populate your firewall rules with except from this IP address, except from this IP address, and then ones that fall into this trap just get added afterwards. Yep, absolutely. Am I crackling or breaking up, or is it coming through okay? Uh, no. I, I hope we're not breaking up. I'd be very upset, John. Cool. You're breaking up a little bit on my end, but if I'm coming through, that's okay. Um, just as long as it comes through clean in the recording. But yeah, I mean, it, and that's something that we've talked about on the show before. If you have something like a Windows firewall, turn the damn thing on. And, you know, you can set up your rules so it can talk to file servers, it can talk to print servers, it can talk to the domain controller exchange servers. And, of course, your scanning systems can go through and check for vulnerabilities. But you should have it on so that if one of your hosts gets compromised and then starts looking for other hosts to compromise, workstation to workstation communication should be abnormal. Um, that's something that just should not happen on your network and your firewall can actually help out with that. So there's a lot that you can do with third-party firewalls and also on your local network um, with the uh, with the built-in firewall even though it, the logging does in fact suck horribly with it. It does work in a pinch. So aside from going through and messing with people in a red team exercise, which by the way, my student used this technique and he also used the technique uh, for the Linux systems. And his red team brethren came in, started scanning, trying to connect to systems. And as soon as they ran regular scanners against the blue team systems, the entire network of the blue team went dark. They couldn't connect to any TCP ports. They could ping. And after about an hour and a half, they had to have someone come in and say, you know, rules of engagement, the blue team is not allowed to run the script anymore. So I really felt good about that. It was it was pretty awesome you know, to finally have the blue team guys. No matter what happens from that point on, they can hold their head a little bit higher whenever they get to the end of the exercise because they basically schooled the, uh, the red team a little bit. And that's awesome. This is also very helpful because I, I personally think that any pen test should be a very collaborative, cooperative effort between the pen testers and the company to really try and find what the risk is. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot of pen tests that are forced upon organizations where an external pen test team comes in, it's kind of a contentious scenario, and this might be something fun to throw up to really make a pen tester's life a lot more difficult as they go through and start trying to attack the network. And many people will say, well, this isn't really the way it would be for an attacker if they broke into your network. No, that's not true. It is, because this will also help detect things like the insider. If you set up this listener listening on port 22, and all of a sudden you have internal IP addresses trying to connect to port 22 or trying to mount a share on a Windows system that they should not be connecting to, this is a nice way to detect those types of abnormalities as well. And in the process, locking your systems down 
from just the attacker's IP address so uh, so the connections don't happen. Now, the reason why this works all revolves around the concept of initial sequence numbers. Um, you see, you just can't throw arbitrary packets at the system and expect it to trip the rule set. It's actually got to complete the TCP IP three-way handshake and actually start sending some data for the rule to be tripped. That's because Netcat will not trigger that executable script unless it has a full connection to that particular port. And I have some links talking about initial sequence numbers and sequence numbers in general. And then also I've got a link to an attack. Kevin Mitnick, uh, Sutomo Shimamura, um, used, a, used this attack strategy to target uh, Sutomo's systems. Uh, Steve Belvin initially came up with the approach years ago. Um, but to that point, it is possible, but it's a lot more difficult if the system you're trying to spoof is on and running. So if you're trying to spoof Google and it starts getting these unsolicited axin packets, it's going to respond back with a reset. So it becomes a race condition for you to try to guess what the initial sequence number is before the real system responds back with a reset and clears that connection queue. So it's extremely unlikely that an attacker would be able to completely bypass this, but it's always possible. There's always new and creative ways as we talk about often on this show. So that was just the Windows one. We're going to talk about the Linux one next week. We've got another short tech segment. And all this is kind of building up to our next webcast that Paul and I will be doing, talking about offensive countermeasures, making attackers' life hell and all the way to hacking back. Excellent. So with that, we'll take a short commercial break and come back and talk about the stories for this week. And we're back. Oh, you ready to go through the stories, John? Yeah, it's kind of a rough day for embedded device systems, isn't it? Yeah, um, actually, Carlos actually called me on the phone. Uh, unfortunately, he couldn't make this recording today, but um, I'm just really happy that uh, HD Moore stepped up and said, put uh, basically put VXWorks in his uh, in his scope and uh, found some vulnerabilities in it. Yeah, and like we were talking about before the show, a lot of stuff that hasn't been broken into yet, it really seems like it's not a function of wonderful secure coding practices, but it just seems like somebody just hasn't spent the time to try popping it yet. Yeah, and it seems that this is a very uh, familiar embedded device problem in that it seems to be this like debug-type service that's running that allows you to manipulate memory. And VX, yeah. VXWorks, of course, runs on all kinds of different things like storage arrays, printers. Now, what I don't want to happen is, you know, HD has targeted a very specific operating system. And while, yes, it's widespread, doesn't account for 100% of the embedded systems out there. So what I truly think is going to happen, which, um, you know, I, I don't know what we can do to prevent this, is VXWorks is going to issue a fix. People are going to patch some stuff. This whole thing is going to blow over and we're going to go back to not paying attention to embedded system vulnerabilities. When the opposite needs to happen and there needs to be some huge changes in the way code and functionality is implemented on embedded systems. And I just, you know, hopefully this will help start pushing that in the right direction. Um, but that was part of the security fail uh, project that, you know, I, has been kind of uh, slow lately, but uh, one which we are certain to hear more about uh, in the near future. Well, we at least have a couple of stories from this week that definitely fill and, fall into that security fail category. Um, also, didn't it mention, Paul, that there were some others, there were some other vendors that HD was going to demo that he could pop as well that may be vulnerable to the same types of misconfigurations? 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I thought it was just VXWorks. I know he was going to demo uh, voice conferencing systems and the Apple Airport Extreme. Is what the article said. Yeah, he also mentioned that other vendors may have this issue. He was talking about D-Link, and uh, there's one little vendor. Oh, Dell and HP are among vendors with products that contain this particular misconfiguration flaw. So yeah, you know, well, it's- so all of the major vendors you just mentioned are running have devices that are running the VXWorks operating system. Mm-hmm. And it's the VXWorks operating system, which is made by like Wind River Systems, I believe, um, yep. that has the real problem. But it's nice that these particular products aren't that widespread, right? Oh, no, they're, they're everywhere. Like someone was saying like NASA uses them. Yeah. I, I mean, and some of them are for out-of-band communications, for management of servers. Um, you talk about Airport Extreme, D-Link products. I mean, yeah. this is yeah. stuff so that... If you, uh, no. if you go to Wind River uh, website, the makers of VXWorks, they've got a little drop-down on their website that says customers. The first one is aerospace and defense. And if you go there, you'll see that their customers include Boeing. Um, now it's just, their website's crashing my browser. <laughs> That's not good. Uh, Northrop Grumman, SpaceX, Honeywell, BAE Systems, uh, you know, all those – Raytheon. So, that, and, you know, yeah. And I remember being in a lot of conversations with uh, with projects where we were planning on bringing, bringing on embedded device Linux and many people liked VXWorks because it was quote-unquote far more secure um, than using Linux or Windows, which is, is always unfortunate whenever you try to decide an operating system security status based on how many vulnerabilities it has, uh, CVEs and OSVDB entries. Yeah, so there's also another category for automotive systems that run VXWorks. Um, Delphi, supplier of mobile electronics and transportation systems, um, Vehicle Infrastructure Integration Consortium uh, runs it as well. So this could potentially could end up in the cars. Um, con- of course, consumer devices. It plays this like stupid video. Uh, Motorola is one of the the big consumer ones. Data robotics. It'd be kind of cool to control a um, a robot. I always wanted to pen test something with a robot and then have the robot run around saying smash, destroy. But <laughs> unfortunately, the the, uh, the opportunity has never come up. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's a lot of network equipment that runs, uh, a lot of telcos and such that run equipment that's running uh, this particular operating system. You know, one of the ones I talked about in my uh, presentation is Huawei, which is uh, runs a lot of uh, telecommunications providers, cable modems and things like that. So... Um, of course, the well, that's interesting. Blue Socket, that's another company that runs these. It's I, I really love it when the company and of course Siemens, which we have a story about Siemens as well. Yep, that's coming up here. That's actually the next one. Should we just yeah. segue? That? Yeah, of course, the LNK vulnerability, which I'm sure you've already read a lot about. Um, if not, we've got a link on the show to the Internet Storm Center talking about it. Uh, so if you're interested in reading more, um, but you know this is this is interesting. I mean, this is this is something that's not new. I mean, we've seen Windows viruses exploit RPC, and there's a lot of products that use RPC. And in this situation, you've got Siemens. Uh, what is it? Somatic Win CC Flexible is the name of the product. Yeah, it, and- it's Siemens, like you know, semen on on a boat. Yeah, yeah, Siemens. And uh, what? You just had to drop that in, didn't you? <laughs> I did. Dude, we aren't, we aren't even to the moat story yet. 
We're not even drinking alcohol. No, which is a bit weird for the middle of the day. Um, but yeah, this is one of those. This is one of those industrial control products that you can control all kinds of dangerous, wonderful things in power stations. And yeah, they're running it on top of Windows. And now we're starting to see a virus that's spreading through these particular uh, these particular environments. And the thing that here's, shocks me is, go yeah, ahead, go well, ahead. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, the vulnerability. The LNK vulnerability strikes me as a bit interesting, right? You render an icon. You don't even have to open the file. You render an icon, and you can get a code execution, uh, You know whether you're looking at the files from a USB drive, a CD drive, or a network share, an SMB share. So I think that your methods of propagation are pretty plentiful. The second thing is the malware was actually exploiting a default password vulnerability on the Siemens equipment. And again, this goes back to the whole thing with embedded system security and the usage of default passwords, which I talk about on this podcast all the time. I talk about it on the Tenable podcast all the time. And we have it as one of our wish list things on the securityfail.com website that we'd wish manufacturers of embedded systems and software would never use a default password. And I, I can't get that message out there enough. And, you know, that seems to be the downfall. Now, the other interesting thing about the Siemens vulnerability is they're now recommending that you don't change your password because it breaks the application, which, I mean, how long do we have to buy crappy software before we say enough is enough? Well, and just on that note, what is the default password? I mean, if we're talking about using default passwords, if you have to use a default password, would it be too much to ask that your default password is not password? Um, I'm not saying that that's what their password well, is. It seems you know, like a lot yeah. of devices out there that the password is something as stupid and simplistic as could possibly be managed. Now, I know that that's not that much of an improvement in security. No, it's not because I, the, what happens is the default password gets published and inevitably yeah. you, know, you just have to do a quick Google search and in the product's documentation, it says the default password is XYZ yeah. and then it gets added to you know, the default password database uh, run out of cert.org, which yeah. has a, a Twitter account and things like that so yeah. um you know that that's not really helping the matter i mean they really what they need to do is let the user choose the password or better yet force their user to ch- to set their password as yeah, soon as force, it starts yeah. out it will force, not work yeah force the user to set a password that is not the same value as whatever the device comes with if it comes with one if not then just have them choose force them to choose a brandy new password that will be the password for this device when it first boots up. Firmware and embedded device engineering might be tricky when you get down to the kernel level, but something like that is certainly an easy feature to build in. The popular embedded systems operating system, OpenWare, had that built in um, from the get-go because they recognized default passwords are bad. So... And and what's interesting is some Linksys devices implement that. I've got yeah. a I've got a Linksys bridge that actually implements that. Now, Obita doesn't implement it very well, and it tells the user to write it down. It tells the user to store it in a clear text file on their desktop. But from the network side of things, having them choose the user choose a password um, is uh, is is a good thing in terms of security for these devices. Yeah, and you know, talking about these devices, it really seems like it's kind of a week of just embedded device uh, carnage. Um, what is it? Story number four. 
kind of with this entire idea, the DNS rebranding attack. Um, rebinding. You know, it's funny. Yeah, rebinding. Sorry. It's funny. You talked about your, your presentation at uh, Source Boston, you know, talking about taking over the world. And, it, it, you know, it, it was all kind of tongue in cheek. But damn, if that doesn't seem to be kind of the way the situation is. Yeah. And, you know, HD Moore uh, had some great research, uh, which will definitely help me take over the world. Thank you, HD. Uh, and then there is another researcher whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, what is his name? Who's going to give the presentation? Is it listed oh, that's the one, the guy that's giving the presentation at DEF CON, right? Yeah, oh, is it DEF CON or Black Hat? Because yeah, we added this story in here. I can't remember. I was giving a giving kind of a... Well, John will look it up while I talk. So <laughs> oh, yeah, a, got the... a researcher giving the presentation at the Black Hat Security Conference. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment. The title of his presentation is How to Hack Millions of Routers. And what the... Craig, descript- Craig Hefner. I've got it. Yes, Craig Hefner. Thank you. And what Craig has uh, released so far is that there is some kind of DNS rebinding attack that allows you to manipulate embedded systems, web interfaces that have a default password. So from everything I've read so far, and I haven't seen the actual presentation, so I don't want to make any assumptions because I'm reading what was talked about in the press, which as we know is kind of like a 50-50 shot if it's accurate or not. Um, yeah. Especially when we get into these technical details like DNS rebinding. So, uh, you know, DNS rebinding is is using DNS and the attacker sets up a website in a DNS server and forces your browser to rebind the connection to evil bad guy site. Um, I'm not sure how this relates to the actual router itself because I always thought DNS rebinding vulnerabilities stemmed from the web browser. However, I also think it's interesting that it does rely on a default username and password be available on your um, on your router because that in and of itself is a vulnerability. And yeah. DNS rebinding is really just another vulnerability that allows you to exploit the default password vulnerability. So it's I think it's all very interesting. I think um, if Craig is presenting... Um, on Wednesday, is you know if his talk is on Wednesday or Thursday at Black Hat? I don't have the Black Hat. Um, it just says it'll be at Black Hat. Yeah, it if, say if it's right. on Wednesday, I will definitely attend the talk because I'll be there. Um, but if it's on Thursday, I won't be, so I'll have to wait for the video to come out. Now, Paul, I just shot you a link with the spreadsheet. Of I the saw that. Um, and, and it looks like this is, you know, like you were talking about, it's not a vendor-specific issue. It looks like it's hitting pretty much all the vendors in some fashion or another. Mm. I mean, if, if you're saying, yeah, I'm using a Linksys uh, Wart 54G, I'm okay. No, there's two specific versions, a hardware version 3 and 5. One has the vulnerability. It looks like the newer one has the vulnerability and the older one does not. So there's quite yeah. a few. So, I, I mean, basically what DNS rebinding allows you to do is break that same origin policy. So I go to Evil Bad Guys website or I go to a site that has Evil Bad Guys code in it, right, via a hidden iframe or cross-site scripting or some combination of the two or what have you, and it loads code in my browser. Now I'm on some website, but because DNS rebinding is breaking that same origin policy, the code in my browser can be told to contact my router. Um, Now this seems like it's a cousin of cross-site request forgery. 
Yeah, it almost seems like it's a cousin of cross-site request forgery. And I think that the way they're able to access the router is they have to know the default. Well, they have to know the IP address, right, which is usually 192.168.1.1, and they have to know the default password. And if they do that, then they can access the router and change settings. So to me, like I said, I think it's a, a two separate vulnerabilities still. I think it's awesome um, that they're Research, using this. Yeah, yeah they're, it's awesome they're using de-industry binding to exploit routers, and I'm curious to hear more details about it. But to me, it sounds like there's two separate vulnerabilities there. Um, and I'd be really know, interested if they to had found they... A, if they had found a new vulnerability that allowed you to attack all of these routers, uh, that would be really cool. Uh, similar to HD's research in the the VXWorks realm. Yep, I'd, I'd really be interested to see in his talk. And if you get to go to it, or if somebody does, drop us an email, let us know to see how many of the vendors actually responded and are going to try to fix this, and how they have, they plan on getting the word out to their users that there's a vulnerability in their product. Right. Right. Oh, wait. Speaking of vulnerabilities and products, Paul, we've got malware on Dell motherboards. Um, I always love it whenever I get hardware that has, you know, it's already infected with what they're calling spyware, but let's just call it malware um, on, on server motherboards. I mean, we saw this a couple of years ago, some Cisco products. We've seen this with picture frames. Um, this is the kind of stuff that scares me a little bit. I wanted to get your opinion on it. Um, the w- Which one was this now? This was uh, story number five, uh, Dell's R410 rack servers. Uh, some of them have spyware embedded into the systems management software. Yeah, you know, we've seen this a lot, certified, pre-owned, um, and it's tough to say how much of a percentage of it was done on purpose. So did someone specifically break into Dell, their network, implant malware on a system that was loading this firmware that then copied it over? You know, I, I I don't know. I think that um, I think malware that spreads via USB is likely to infect stuff as a byproduct. Um, yep. I think it'd be really neat to have a case study that showed people doing this on purpose, uh, because the manufacturing plants really need to have stringent security when you're shipping something out like a motherboard that um, you know can compromise a system. Well, and, and I think you started out talking about the range of, of possibilities. We have all the way from um, this is just basically refurbished hardware is a possibility, right? You know, I got the refurbished hardware and the pre- previous owner is the one that put it on it to the systems that are actually taking that uh, the, the microcode and the firmware and dropping it in are compromised all the way up to maybe maybe the factory itself has been compromised and it's on all the different devices. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's frightening is how little information we actually get on these types of vulnerabilities as far as how bad it actually is. Um, so, you know, the guys from Dell basically basically listed out some, finally today, some answers to these issues. It does not affect their Dell PowerEdge servers shipped in their factories, and it's limited to a small number of replacement motherboards. So it's just the replacement servers, and they expect that it's only, they're, what they're saying right now is the maximum potential exposure is 1% of their server models. And the worm was Win32 SpyBot worm, which is the one that was on the flash storage of the motherboard during testing itself. Um, so yeah, I mean, it goes all the way from, oh dear God, they've owned thousands of systems to maybe it's not that bad, but not getting right. enough information is horrible. Yeah. And a lot of that certified pre-owned stuff, we don't have a lot of information. I, I wish we had more information uh, about it, you know. Yeah, you always got to be com- uncomfortable when a large corporation says this is only a problem for one percent of all of our products because those initial numbers tend to be a scooch low. Mm. 
let's see. We talked about Zeus. You know, Alex was talking about Zeus. Yep. I thought uh, it's still prevalent. Someone uh, from Sunbelt found a command and control server that was home to over 5,000 of these infected hosts. Most were home users, but some were corporations and governments, and there was over a gigabyte of information like documents and text files collected by the Zeus botnet sent back to this controller. So I thought it was kind of scary that malware is propagating through our respective organizations, stealing information, and we don't know about it uh, until we, you know, come across this command and control server. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the size of, what did they say, only 5,000 systems, and they were able to pull up. Uh, how much information were they able to pull off? 1.1 one, one one gigawatts, gigabytes. 1.1 gigawatts? Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, that's that's still a lot of data to pull off. And it, yeah. you know, I'd be interested to know whether or not it was targeted to specific types of files, like Excel spreadsheets, Word documents, PDFs, specifically what were they pulling off. Right. It said text documents, so I'm not sure what it meant by that. And you know with a lot of these articles, that can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of sick of people saying that VPN will save you in terms of security on an open Wi-Fi network because I've never really thought that to be the case. And I found an article from someone that was kind of playing up the whole VPN thing and how you should subscribe to even a third-party VPN service to protect yourself on open Wi-Fi networks because they're so prevalent now at Starbucks and all the stuff. And I just don't see that happening. I think whatever protocol you're using, if it's traveling on an open Wi-Fi network, you have to assume it's compromised because in an open Wi-Fi network, the attacker can control your internet, right? It, they can control everything on an open Wi-Fi network. And, but, but I got a question for this, and it's not trying to be snarky or sarcastic, but the basic premise of that theory is if your traffic's traversing across a network segment that you do not own, it should not be trusted. Why can't we say the same thing for the traffic that's going out on the open internet to over internet service providers as well? Well, because with Wi-Fi, there are so many layer two type attacks that can be used to trick your machine and gain a much deeper foothold than if it's just flying across some central router. Sure, someone can own that router, um, but in open Wi-Fi, there's things like injection attacks. Uh, there's yeah. things like wireless driver uh, which I guess no matter what wireless network you're using, you're <laughs> vulnerable to a wireless driver attack. But well, and if you, we you know, some- I think there's a different class of attacks that... They're going to try and subvert your connection. Yeah, I mean, and if you look at some of the tools that have come out there, like we talked about SSL strip a lot, and you know, mm-hmm. still, I don't think it's quite getting the buzz that it should. Um, but even aside from that particular tool, you've got Free Radius Web uh, Wireless Pwnage Edition from Josh. Um, right. It's it's kind of freaky, yeah. If somebody can intercept that particular communication, and a lot of the VPNs run over SSL, and I think yeah. everybody that listens to this podcast on a regular basis is probably starting to get some very ugly feelings about SSL as a whole. I feel We all feel like there's right. something bad that's going to happen because the cracks now, are surfacing. My solution for this, because, I mean, we need we all need the internet, right? My solution is to use a 3G or Evdo internet connection. Now, I'm not saying that this medium is more secure than Wi-Fi. I'm saying right now, the cost of attacking a 3G or Evdo uh, wireless connection is much higher than attacking Wi-Fi. And that's one mm-hmm. of the things we need to keep in mind when we're constructing defenses is how do I make it economically impossible or as close to economically impossible as as uh, you can for an attacker to get at your data. And I think from forgetting about the traditional Wi-Fi, which there's so many different attacks and Anyone can go buy a laptop and a card and attack your Wi-Fi connection to something like 3G, um, Evdo, CDMA, GSM, which is going to cost someone a lot more. And the attacks are not as widely publicized, understood, 
and likely not in in use as much as the Wi-Fi attacks are. Now, I still run my secure protocols over my 3G or Evdo internet connection um, just to be more paranoid. Uh, But I think just by making that protocol kind of switch or that uh, physical medium uh, switch is going to improve your security greatly. And but one of the things that scares me about that is I agree with you. Like whenever I travel, I'm using my eVideo card with Verizon. Um, mm-hmm. No, I'm not connecting to it wirelessly through my MiFi. But uh, if we look at some of the research that Chris Pageant has done, whenever we're talking mm-hmm. about using OpenBTS, as uh, GSM seriously talk at ShmooCon was really eye-opening because these particular protocols has, have major issues as well. And it seems like the vendors are a lot less likely to fix these because they say that it's harder for attackers to get into. Um, so what do you what do you think about that do you think i mean i agree that the economic cost of getting into it is a lot more difficult because anybody can run a wireless card and anybody can run carmeta split mm-hmm. um, but do you feel like some organizations may be setting themselves up for a false sense of security in the ultimate fall from that if they switch over to these cell-based providers well i still think from watching chris patchett's talk at uh ShmooCon, i still think it's a lot more difficult to pull off that attack than some of the Wi-Fi attacks right now. Now, that may change in the future, um, but I still think it's a lot more difficult to get someone to, um, you know, execute those attacks over GSM uh, just because of the way it works as a protocol, you know. Yeah, and it's not something that's to throw into your backpack and, and, you know, go down to the local Starbucks either. Yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, you need a few more thousand dollars worth of equipment. But, uh, you know, I I think Evdo, certainly with CDMA, uh, because Evdo is still using CDMA, correct? Yep. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of supposed to be untouchable, so no one's talking about it because you're not allowed to reverse engineer it. And the only reason we know what we know about GSM is because it's used in Europe, and there's no such thing as the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Yep, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I, it'll be interesting to see how these play out. And it, you know, one of the nice things is, well, especially with Evdo, not that it's been broken or anything, but eventually it's going to be phased out by the LTE solutions. Right. Um, so you know, it'll be interesting to see as people start standardizing on these protocols, um, how many more attacks will actually come out targeting them. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're right, John. I think eventually at some point in the future, people are going to be attacking cellular networks probably just as much as they are Wi-Fi. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what we use for VPN technologies, whether we're still using SSL or we switch over to straight IPsec directly to our gateways. Yeah, I mean, even that has its problem. I, You know, mm-hmm. I I don't know. I, if the listeners can weigh in on this one. I mean, do you think open Wi-Fi, if you compare open Wi-Fi to a GSM or Evdo connection, do you think it's the security is the same? That's a good question for Josh Wright. We're trying to get Josh on the show. I think that's an excellent question for him. Um, with respect to wireless security because I look at the security of an open wireless network and it's absolutely atrocious and it's been hacked six ways to Sunday and um, you know I'm wondering if the other options are as bad yep but you know what's nice is if we could put a, a fiat to stop researchers from talking about the security research, I think that that seems to work. Or something yeah right <laughs> talking about story number 12 you, you put this one up, what's going on with this one? Uh, which hold on, I, I lost my browser. Hang on. Oh, number uh, twelve, researcher pulls yeah. cash machine talk. Well, yeah. So uh, there was a researcher that had a talk about how to hack into an ATM, and this isn't Barnaby Jack, and pulled it um, to give the vendor more time to fix it. And you know, I think Barnaby Jack's presentation at um, Black Hat is one of the must-see 
talks out there where he's going to talk about how to subvert the security and basically make the money come out of ATMs, which I think if you've got a magic attack like that, uh, you need to seriously consider the repercussions to releasing it publicly. Um, you know, I think there is some kind of uh, responsibility that you have to make sure that that information is responsibly or released in a cohort. I like the word coordinated when we talk about disclosure. And Kelly Todd, who I do the Tenable podcast with, was talking about that this week. And he said it's a coordinated disclosure. And I like coordinated better. Because you, yeah. you need to coordinate with the vendor, not and act responsible, but I think more important, the responsibility falls on both the security researcher and the vendor, not just one or the other. So it's a joint responsibility, which is why it needs to be coordinated. So it's almost like it needs to be a responsibly coordinated disclosure is where we need to start heading to. <laughs> well, and you're absolutely right. This needs to be something that's on both sides of the fence, the actual company and the security researcher. Um, I, I seriously think, though, if a security researcher finds a vulnerability of this particular magnitude, if this is, if it is going to be as fact as big as we think it may be, I, I do feel at some point if the vendor is dragging their feet, they're kind of obligated to try and share that information with the wider public. But I think that you have to try pretty damn hard with the vendors before you start getting crazy and start releasing things. And no, waiting one or two weeks is probably not long enough with uh, these particular vulnerabilities. But then again, it's probably at the prerogative of the of the security researcher. I'm a strong believer in freedom of speech, but I also think that there can be some ethical uh, kind of restraint as well. Well, and I think that if you did decide that the vendor is dragging their feet or whatever the situation and you did release it, I don't know if I would disagree with you there. Because um, certainly the ability to make cash flow from an ATM, I mean, maybe the banks would just shut down the ATMs and then they would fix the problem and reopen them back up. And sometimes that's the only way the problems get fixed, unfortunately. And yep. like I said, I think we need to start moving towards a more responsible coordinated disclosure between researchers and vendors and um you know i'm not the one to come out and say when a researcher releases it that that's a bad thing because it's going to get fixed you know yep absolutely i think it's worse if you keep the vulnerability and associated exploit to yourself or sell it on the black market or use it for your own gain because then no one that can fix or prevent the problem is aware of it now, Paul, what if I actually use that money to get myself a house with armed guards, bikini-clad women, a pool? Is that okay? That's perfectly okay. That's just kind of how I picture the average criminal who's made it big. You know, Maybe not the average criminal, but of all the average criminals, the ones that make it big, I see them buying a house in a warm, sunny place, bikini-clad women, the swimming pool, cocktails, cigars, armed guards all around the big high fence and things like that, and then... <laughs> They always, in all the movies that you notice that have that, the criminal gets too greedy, you know, and it just kind of escalates and escalates until their ultimate downfall. Yeah, and that's usually just right before that happens, about the time that their email signature is, I'm rich, bitch, and they type in caps at all times. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it's, fairly, it's fairly easy to see that arc that a cyber criminal will make based on you know how many exclamation points and cap locks they use but then again as my dad's always said to me that's what cocaine will do to you so <laughs> so anyway yeah that was uh my thought there no now just kind of you know two of the things that are left on the table whenever you have your 98 gigabyte porn collection and you're using TrueCrypt to protect it do you just leave that 
kind of just laying around, Paul, or do you do something to try and, you know, is there some secure procedures whenever you're working with TrueCrypt and I think, I think there's some regulations when you're a forensics investigator that says if there's uh, a multi-gigabyte drive anywhere on the system that's labeled porn and is encrypted, it's probably a red flag. <laughs> that's just me. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's one of the things I would look for. And we've been trying to figure out, like before the show started, Paul and I were talking about how we deal with this. And one of the things that we realized is you don't keep your porn collection on your computer. You leave it out on the internet because it's always right. going to be there. Well, I, you know, the only – there's a few different scenarios that kind of play out here. If you are – if you do come across a system that has a volume labeled porn and it's multiple gigabytes and it's encrypted, you can derive a few things about – what's in that encrypted volume most likely it's the kind of pornography that's illegal and deserves an immediate call to the fbi um other likely scenarios are um it's personal and involves the owner of that pornography within the pornography (laughs) or it could just be some really freaking damn good porn that he doesn't want anyone else to see and sometimes you've just got to protect that right right (laughs) <laughs> this is true. All right. All righty. Well, anyway. Yeah, we, I think we've hit the porn thing enough. Oh, we maybe did. not yet. Um, well, the last other story of interest that I had this week was a transvestite having sex with a dog at an English heritage castle. Where For in those, the castle, Paul? In the moat. I mean, in the moat. If it wasn't in the moat, it might be weird. If this doesn't scream somebody <laughs> scratching things off of his uh, bucket list, nothing yeah. does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for the quote from police officers that say alcohol was involved, but so yeah. far that's not here. Because, <laughs> you know, you can always go to the pubs. If this was you, uh, if you were the guy that did this, you could always go back and you could tell your friends. But I was drunk. Actually, no, that wouldn't even help in this situation. No. I think, I think you're pretty much hosed. You'd have to exp- – never mind. Anyway. Yeah, let's, let's – Well, that, yeah. that story is in there for those that are interested in uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's funny. If you click the link, we pretty much told you everything you need to know about the story. Pretty, yeah, there's really not much more you're going to glean from the article. So no. the core discount code is IMPACTBSG. And uh, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to Paul.com. I'd like to thank John for being the uh, illustrious uh, other guy, as they call it, on the show. And uh, hosting the show together with me, which was great fun. Yep. Definitely. We're looking. Uh, I'm looking forward to going out to Black Hat. Uh, John, you'll be at Sands Boston, as will I. Yep. What, present, what presentation are you going to give in Sans Boston? I'm giving the embedded one, uh, embedded device hacking, and your plot, in uh, my plot, uh, which could become your plot to take over the world. So, if people missed it at Source, they can come and they can see it at the Sans conference. They can, and I will try and update it with some of the latest information uh, that's been available publicly and both collected privately by myself. So, yeah, we might have to actually pull out some pictures of clubbing baby seals again because I think no. that, that might be apt. No. Actually, out of everything we've done, I think that created the most hate mail for Paul.com. So, yes. yeah, it's not a good idea to keep that off. <laughs> Alrighty, well, thanks everyone for listening.